Well, again, church, it's fantastic to see you guys. And this is a first time, or, or again, a first time in a long time. We started this series way back in the fall. Uh, we're about to wrap it up in the next few weeks, but it's on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We've covered a lot of ground so far in the series, and we've now kind of transitioned to a time where we're looking at some of the different interactions that he had, specifically with various women in which he engaged with different women and let them change, and they would go on to be mightily used by him for his purposes and for his glory. So we're going to continue in that this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Uh, if you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, you can do go ahead and do that. Luke 10, we're going to start in 38, go all the way to verse 42. Uh, it's a pretty familiar story about two sisters that could not be more different from one another, but it's going to be all about the problem of busyness uh, and how we're supposed to go about finding rest in the middle of such busyness. So uh, I was telling the first service, I don't, I don't know that there could be more relevant uh, subject matter to be kind of dealing with than busyness in Dallas, Texas in the 21st century, right? It's just, it's just the world in which we live in. We are constantly busy and have a million different things right in front of our face. Uh, this past week, I was reading this article uh, about a group of people that presented this research to Congress in the 1960s about all the different time-saving devices and time-saving things that were being invented at that time. And they made this presentation to Congress in which they said, okay, the trends are going to be changing with all these different time-saving devices, smart technology, which wasn't there then, but it was coming into play a little bit more and more, all these different things. Uh, people are going to be working only about 15 to 20 hours a week. And the problem that we're going to be dealing with as a country is, okay, what do we do with all this free time on our hands? Right? Like, literally, that's what they presented to Congress, right? Massive fail. Right? As, uh, we kind of we missed the mark on that. We're not really solving the problem of busyness today, are we? Uh, the article continued to talk about how about 86% of men and about 67% of women, uh, on average, work more than 40 hours every single week. More than 40 hours. Um, and they went on to talk about how about two-thirds of those who do so uh, will often acknowledge that they feel like they never have enough time in their work week in order to get everything they need to get done done, right? And so we're working over and over again, and uh, we never feel like we have enough time. The article continued to talk about how only about 57% of us will actually take our allotted vacation, right? In other words, our employers are paying us to go home, to take a trip, to stay home, and to do nothing, to get the rest and relief we need. And we're saying, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather be in the office and go and, and work all day long doing whatever it is that we need to do, right? And we know that this has fallout on us, right? Uh, we know that there's physical, there's emotional consequences and things of that nature. Uh, CNN did a six-year study of about 2,500 different people. Uh, they found out that people who worked about 11-hour days uh, on average, were two and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with clinical depression than people who worked an average of only eight hours a day. Enormous difference between those two people, right? Um, it continued on, and it talked about how it's impacting our sleep. We're not sleeping as much anymore as we used to. Uh, today, we're sleeping about two hours less uh, each night than our great-grandparents were about 100 years ago. So you remember, like, we, we read all these stories, right? And we're like, hey, great uncle Benjamin, whatever. And he, he'd get up, you know, as soon as his son got up and he would read his Bible and he would memorize scripture and he would solve the world's problems all before really the sun came up and we were all really impressed by that. Oh, the reason that was is because there wasn't much electricity at the time. And so they were going to bed when the sun went down, evidently, right? It was a much different time. Uh, even 100 years ago, they're getting about two hours more uh, of sleep each night than we're getting today. Uh, there's a lot of different fallout and different things from that. They're talking about how it leads to sleep deprivation, leads to obesity, leads to diabetes, leads to anxiety, and leads to either even greater depths of depression. And the article talked about how things aren't getting better today. You and I know this. We, it's about summertime. It's vacation time. You ever go on a vacation and you kind of come back from vacation and you feel more exhausted than when you first went on vacation? 
right? Like that dynamics, that dynamics happening all the time, right? You go out there and you're, you're so, you're, you never really disconnect. You're always connected to your phone online. People always have access to you wherever it is that you go. You never really disconnect from those things and then you're always still feeling exhausted at the end of a vacation. And then of course you throw kids in the mix and it just keeps going, getting more and more difficult, right? Uh, Jim Gaffigan talked about this. I thought it was absolutely hilarious, but he was doing a little stint. Jim Gaffigan's a funny comedian. I can't vouch for everything he says anyway. Um, but anyway, I thought this part was hilarious. But he was just talking about how people always ask him, how, do you, how, how was the transition from going from three kids to four kids in your home? Like, dude's got four kids. It's obviously very busy there. And he goes, okay, how was the transition from going to three kids to four kids? And he goes, imagine it's like this. You're, you're trying to swim across the ocean. You get to the middle of the ocean and, like, you're barely making it. You're about to drown. You're doing everything you can to keep your head above the water. And then people come by on a boat. They throw you another child and say, they say, hey, catch. Right? Like, that's what it's like to go from three kids to four kids and stuff, right? But I think we get this. This is, this is, this is 21st century life in Dallas. Unbelievable, un- unbelievably busy. It's responsibility after responsibility after responsibility and not all bad things. Some of them very, very important things. The question I want to look at today that I think our passage is going to help us with is essentially this. How in the world do we balance the tension between all the different responsibilities that we have, all the different things that keep us busy, and the genuine rest that we all know that we need. I think that's the, te- that's the, the question that this text is going to help us with today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 10, we're only going to be in four verses, pretty short text here. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And like I said, we're going to see this story here between two sisters we talked about a little bit here in the past, Mary of Bethany and Martha. Uh, two sisters that are very, very different from one another. We, we see their story three different times in Scripture. They jump up at different times. Uh, this is going to be the first engagement that they have with Jesus. Uh, the second one, these are also Lazarus' sisters. You remember that story? We talked about that about four or five weeks ago. Uh, Lazarus' sister, Lazarus dies. They're mourning. Jesus comes to them, raises Lazarus from the dead. But that's another interaction that we see between uh, Mary, Martha, and Jesus right there. And then in Matthew 26, we're looking at this during the Passion Week of Jesus. As Jesus is moving to the cross, it's his last week in his life. We see this beautiful scene where Mary of Bethany understands. She's one of the only people that understands what's going on with Jesus. And we see her anointing Jesus' feet with expensive, expensive perfume. Everybody else is upset about it. They don't understand why she's doing it and wasting all this money. And Jesus says, she understands that I'm going to the cross and that she's preparing me for my burial. She gets what other people do not understand. This is going to be the first time that they ever had this opportunity to meet Jesus. And here's what it says. It says that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at Lord's feet listening to what he said. One of the things that I love about Mary of Bethany is that every single time we see her in Scripture, she's always going to be at the Lord's feet. This is the posture of Mary of Bethany. She is always at the Lord's feet. Um, she did it there when, when she find out, when Jesus comes and meets her when she, about Lazarus' news. It says that she falls at his feet and weeps and says, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have taken place. She's there in the last week of Jesus' life as she's anointing his feet with oil. She's, she's washing his feet with her hair in, in, in this perfume, and she's just at his feet. This is the posture of Mary. She's just always at the feet of Jesus. But here's what it says about Martha, verse 40. Martha, it says, was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help me out. In other words, like she's tattling on Mary, and then um, she's telling Jesus what to do, right? Which doesn't really work out very well most of the time. So verse 41, he goes, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. 
uh, very, very important statement. Whenever you repeat the, the, the first name, that's kind of like Aaron Callahan Armstrong, right? You're going just first names here, and he's just kind of saying this is very important. You're worried and upset about so many different things, he says. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, a lot of different commentators, as you read this passage, and, and you kind of going to make these notes as you look at this passage yourself, a lot of different commentators are going to say, okay, what you're seeing here are kind of two distinct personality types in play in the same home, right? Like Martha, a lot of you identify with her. She's the task-oriented person, right? You know what I'm talking about? She's the Enneagram one or three. Uh, you guys have those, any, any ones or threes in the house today? Uh, you love your tasks, you love your to-do list. January 1st comes, you're like, it's too late, I already made my, my life, my, my declarations long before that. Um, they're the task-oriented people. Like they love doing things and checking things off of a list and, and things of that nature. And of course, you got Mary, who's the people person. She's probably that Enneagram 6, that very, very loyal person that just wants to be with people and around people all the time. Uh, any of you guys had that sibling dynamic in your home? You're kind of going, I don't know how we're related. Like, we're so different from one another. Uh, we're always kind of rubbing against each other in some different ways, right? I, I, some of us are nodding. You're kind of going, yeah, I know exactly what that. The good news of this passage is this is not a statement about which personality type or anything like that is better, right? This isn't about people, people versus task-oriented people. It's not about any of those things. And it's also not this assault against hospitality or serving people that you invite into your home. Right? This isn't a lesson about Jesus saying, okay, when you invite your neighbors and you invite your friends to your place, as soon as they get there, you need to tell them, hey, thanks for coming over. I'm going to the back room for my quiet time right now. I'm going to have a little prayer time. Uh, the food's in the fridge. Right? It's, it's, it's not one of these assaults against hospitality, taking care of people, serving people, or anything like that. I mean, Paul's going to say, Colossians 3.23, he's going to say, whatever it is that you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Right? Paul's also going to say, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which he's already prepared in advance for us to walk in. In other words, like this is not an assault against doing good work or even working really, really, really hard. All he's saying is that all of this great work that we do, all of the busyness that you and I engage in, all the different ways that we serve and all of these different things, they've got to be secondary to sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it's exactly what he's saying, verse 41, right? Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about so many different things, but there's really only one thing that's necessary. In other words, there's a lot of different things that you could be doing right now, but there's really only one, only one thing that you should be doing right now. The King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, is sitting there right in your room. You have the word of God incarnate in flesh in front of your face. So there's a lot of different things that you could be doing right now, but there's a really only one thing that you should be doing. Church, this entire passage is a matter of priority. The whole thing is a matter of priority. It's Proverbs. It's what, the, what Proverbs is going to say when he says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your different ways. Acknowledge him first and he will make your path straight. In other words, like you start with that. You start with, hey, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting the Lord with, with everything that you have. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, meaning in all of your ways, submit to him is, a, is another word for that. In all of your ways, give your life to him. And then his responsibility is that he will come alongside and he will end up making your path straight. In other words, the entire thing is about keeping first things first and making your priorities in the right place. Um, anyone big fans of Stephen Covey, Franklin Covey? You got the organizers, you got the planners, right? I, a lot of people love him. About in the mid '80s, he came up with a. Um, you guys remember the illustration that he gave 
about keeping your priorities straight. This is a big one that got really, really famous. It was out there forever. And I remember kind of one of the first times I saw this, it was, it was one of these things that kind of you never really forget about. Uh, very, very simple, and it's been done a hundred times uh, since then. But um, he basically kind of, he, uh, he calls it the illustration about the big rocks. Um, I'm not using rocks. I had fruit in my home, and I had a whole lot of rice and stuff like that. And so I think that works. And, uh, babe, I think we can wash this off and still use it later, so we're pretty good. But um, you remember how it all works. But he essentially says, okay, uh, you've got this bucket, and you've got all this rice is what I'm going to be using here instead of sand. But the rice is going to illustrate all the different things that you could be doing any given day. These are going to be priorities. They're going to be, they're going to be things that are important, but if they don't actually get done, then they're not the biggest deal, and, and things aren't going to fall apart in your life. He's going to say you're going to have a million of these different things and these different decisions that you need to make about how you want to spend your time. And then he says you've got the, you've got the pebbles, you've got the, bigger, the secondary priorities, and then you've got the really, really big priorities um, later on. These are the things that are the most important things in your life. And he says if you start by doing all the different things down here that don't really matter, then you're not going to have enough time and you're not going to have enough space to be able to put everything in. The lid will not fit on top of the, the bucket, if you will. Right? But he says if you change things around and you begin with first things first, right? And he says if you begin and, uh, boy, first hour, this is hilarious. I spilled this all over the, all over the stage. It was incredible. Um, but he says if you begin with first things first, right, and you put the big things in the, in the bowl first, everything else is going to work out that way. You put, the, you put the big rocks in and you start with all of that, all the other stuff is going to figure out a way no spilling. You'll be able to put the lid back on top. I remember watching that probably in junior high, kind of going, whoa, man, I need to think about my priorities a little bit more, right? It just magically works and things of that nature. But Covey figured out, like, you've got to figure out a way to keep first things first and to make big priorities number one and to be able to circle your life around those things. That's exactly what's happening here in this passage. Very, very simple, very, very simple a principle in place, but it's exactly what he's saying right here. It's what Jesus has talked about in Matthew 6, 33, when he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, all the other things will be added unto you. Martha, Martha, like you're worried about so many different things. You're worried and anxious about, about rice. You're, you're worried and anxious about all these different things that are going on over here. Like why in the world are you worrying about all these different things? Why in the world are you not thinking about the fact that I am standing here right in front of you, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the promised Messiah, you know who I am. And the things that you're thinking about and worried about and anxious about, they're things like rice. Church, it is the defining difference between Mary and Martha in this story. Right? Mary's experience is full of peace and it's full of rest because she's put the rock first. She put first things first and she's resting at the feet of Jesus. And of course, Martha's worried and upset about so many different things. Church, let me ask you this question. What do you think it is that she's worried about? Like, do you think that there's a little similarity between the things that she worries about, which drive her to overwork and drive her to be excessively busy, and the things that we worry about too? Or do you think it could be possible that she's thinking, okay, well, if I don't get this thing done, then who else is going to get this thing done? It's certainly not going to be Mary, that worthless sister of mine. Like, I'm the only person who can do these things right. Like, do you think, like, you notice, you know anybody that kind of thinks like that from time to time? Right? I, could it be uh, the insecurity that says, okay, well, if I'm not doing this perfectly or if I'm not doing things, this thing better than everyone else, maybe it's the insecurity kind of saying, hey, if I don't get this perfect, then what in the world are other people going to think about me? Like if my house isn't tidy and this meal isn't absolutely perfect, then what in the world are people going to think about me? Could it be the fear about, okay, well, maybe it's not what other people think, but like what in the world is Jesus going to think about me? 
I mean, he's, I mean, he's a son of God. I'm having the son of God over for dinner. It's not like I can go out and, and get KFC for this one or something like that, right? I, I, I'm going to clean my house. If Radabaugh comes over to my house, like I do a little vacuum maybe every now and then, right? But you have the son of God over to your place. I mean, uh, you, surely there's a little bit of a fear there, right? I mean, I, what in the world is Jesus going to think about me if, if the meal's not perfect and the house isn't tidy and all these little things aren't, taking, aren't, aren't in order? Church, like some of us are worried and upset about so many different things because deep down inside, like we always feel like there's something that we still have to prove. Like there's always something that, you know what, there's something left on the, on the table which hasn't been taken care of fully and completely. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I'm seeing a buddy of mine from the old work days and stuff here, but I was remember one of these early days, uh, what is back in the car sale days, and I had a customer there. It was probably one of the more interesting engagements probably that I had, and um, this guy comes in, and, and uh, he wanted to test drive a, a, she, a, a Corvette Z06, which as a salesman, that's a, your, always, always your dream. You're like, yes, I want to go drive the fast cars and the fun cars and stuff like that. And, and uh, this guy comes in, and we're having a good time talking and getting to know each other. And we pull around this, this Corvette, the Z06, and, and we go out for a drive, and the dude just un, unloads on Lemon Avenue and just opens it up, and he's having a good time, and he's just, he's just, he's just eating it all up. And we pull back into the lot, and... And uh, clearly, he's having fun. He's like, yeah, I'm ready to buy this thing. I want to I buy this car. And, and finally, I just kind of asked him. And I was like, look, I can see you're loving how fast it is. It's obviously looks awesome. It's a cool car and stuff like that. But like, why do you really want to buy this car? And, uh, and he goes, well, uh, he starts telling me a little bit about his story. And he goes, well, he goes, I can't wait to see the look on my dad's face when he sees me pull, pull up in, in this parking lot. He goes, my whole life, he told me I was never going to amount to anything. And he, when he sees that I'm able to buy this car that he always wanted and was never able to have, like he's going to absolutely flip out. And I can't wait to see the expression on his face. And I'm thinking, okay, I was like, really? Wow. It's a large investment to prove a point. <laughs> I mean, church, do we ever do that? Do we ever, do we ever excessively work? I mean, this is the reason that this is the thing that drove him to work as hard as he did. This, this desire to have this void filled um, that was emptied out by his father when he was young. I mean, do we ever, do we ever operate in, in places of busyness and excessiveness kind of, kind of from this place of deficit when we don't have things fully taken care of inside of us? I told you a little while ago about a, a guy I used to know, and um, his entire life growing up, grandmother, grandfather, both parents, brothers, uncles, sisters, everybody in between, his nickname for him growing up was Little Dummy. Always call it, was just always called Little Dummy. For the longest time, he always believed that he was dumb, and now he's on his third master's proving everybody around him that he's not little dummy. My church, this is how we operate a whole lot of times, right? Like, if, if these things aren't taken care of, like, I mean, he's just always working in order, to, in order to get over this thing. And what I'm trying to say is that fear has a way of disseminating at the feet of Jesus Christ. All these fears and all these different insecurities. Um, uh, yeah, we're not using that one anymore. Uh, that was on the, the, that got X'd from the message right there. Um, but that all those fears and insecurities have a way of disseminating at the foot of the cross. That when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you, re, you, re, you receive from him over and over and over again every single day, all those insecurities about I'm deficient, where I've got to find my value, am I actually enough, those things have a way of disseminating at the foot of the cross. And when you're sitting there and you're receiving from the Lord Jesus Christ and he is constantly feeding you and telling you what's true, reminding you that you are totally and completely loved by God and that you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, that's what the Psalms say, Psalm 139.4. Like, you and I have been fearfully and wonderfully made on purpose. Like, that's what he does when we sit at the foot of the cross and we receive from him every single day. 
Like he's going to remind you that you and I have been created in the image of God and every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity, value, and purpose. He's going to remind you that if you are in Jesus Christ and you have been completely forgiven and totally set free, that you've been given the right to be called a child of God and that you've been completely forgiven of every past transgression. That He's going to remind you that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that because he now lives in you, that he now calls you things like holy and saint and co-heir with Christ and masterpiece and an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Like that's who you actually are now that you're in Jesus Christ. And when you're sitting at the feet of Jesus and you're receiving from him over and over and over again, that's what we begin to understand is actually true. Church, like what else is there to prove? Where is the room for this fear and insecurity and all this anxiety that drives us to overwork and to always prove and to keep going over and over and over again? If you're sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, like what else is there to prove? Church, it's because of his infinite love for you and because you were fearfully and wonderfully made and because you were made in the image of God and because he never stopped loving you, even in the middle of our sin, that, be, that because of God's love, that's why he sent his one and only son, Jesus, so you and I could be reconciled to him and then be given the right to be called children of God and be called things like holy and saint and beloved and ambassadors and co-heirs with Christ and things like that. Church, it's why fear, it's why fear dissipates when we sit at the feet of Jesus Christ every single day. Church, some of us are worried and upset about our abilities because we think that God needs us in order to get things done. In other words, like we, we, we really believe that, that God needs me right now in order to get every little thing done. Like Paul's going to remind us, I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 3.6. He's going to say, uh, church, hey, I planted the seed. And this is Paul speaking, right? The author of half the New Testament, greatest missionary the world's ever seen, most successful church planner in church history, right? And, and Paul's going to remind us, he needs to say, I planted the seed. Apollos, he came along and he watered it, but it was God who made it all grow. In other words, like he didn't even fully need me. It was God that was going and bringing about all the supernatural growth that you and I, we, that we were always praying for. Church, literally every single story in scripture is testifying to this reality that he doesn't need you, but he chose to use you and me, and that he goes and does the heavy lifting for us, and that when we fall short, his power is more than capable of coming and sustaining all these things that we were praying for every single day. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 8, right? The, the story of, of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. One of, my, one of my favorite evangelism stories here. You guys remember this one at all? Like Philip is this normal everyday guy. He's led by the Holy Spirit down this path down to Gaza. And he's headed down there and he doesn't know why he's going, going down there. He comes across this Ethiopian eunuch who happens to be reading a, a scroll of Isaiah. And Philip comes across him and he says, hey, uh, do you know what you're reading? And the, the eunuch just looks at him and he goes, how could I know what I'm reading unless someone's here to explain it to me? And Philip just goes, hey, lucky you. I happen to know what this means. I can actually explain this to you. And you remember, like, the Holy Spirit just set up this entire encounter. And Philip comes and explains to him that Jesus is a suffering servant. Here's what took place on your behalf. And immediately that guy is baptized in a puddle that day, and he's saved. I, I, it's, just, it's just one story after another, the entire book of Acts. The story and history, the founding of the church is simple people being used by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit going before us, doing all the heavy lifting, and bringing about the greatest revival that the church has ever seen. Every single time. He's the one that does all the heavy lifting. He's the one that intercedes on our behalf. He's the one who's strong in the middle of our weakness. Acts chapter 16, the, the, the story of the Philippian jailer. You remember this, Peter and his, his boys, like they're in the prison at that time for, for preaching the gospel. And you remember what happens? There's an earthquake that takes place and all of a sudden they're, they're set free from their chains. The jailer's freaking out because now we got all these prisoners that are set free. Uh, they're going to figure out what took place. I'm going to be killed for it. And Peter comes home and he says, hey, don't be afraid. We're not taking off right now, buddy. 
And he goes, why would you not take off? And he goes, he goes God has something here for us. He goes and he preaches the gospel to the Philippian jailer, and the, and the guy just looks at him and he says, what, what do I need to do to be saved? And you remember what Peter says? He says, simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and your family will then be saved. I mean, it's the most easy layup in the, in, in the world. The Holy Spirit's already done all the heavy lifting, the earthquake, and this tremendous miracle. He's prepared this guy to receive the gospel. I mean, Jonah, the same thing. Jonah's the worst evangelist ever in the history of the world. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the worst message that you could possibly preach. He simply says, 40 more days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. I mean, that's his message. He doesn't want these guys to repent or anything like that. But the Holy Spirit has gone before him. The Holy Spirit's doing all the heavy lifting. The Holy Spirit's interceding on their behalf. And God brings about revival to Nineveh, uh, even though Jonah's really, really ticked off about the entire thing. Church, the reality is he does not need you and me. He brings us along the way. And when you and I are weak, he is strong and he intercedes on our behalf. And he does all the things that you and I cannot do. We can plant. We can water. But it is the Holy Spirit that comes along. And he's the one that brings our growth. Church, like what in the world is she afraid of? Like what in the world is she afraid is not going to get done in the presence of Jesus? Like, I mean, that, 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 you know how liberating this is when you come to the feet of Jesus and you remember, and you re, you remember how powerful he is and, and the fact that he's offered to intercede on our behalf? Like it, it sets us free and allows us to focus on being faithful instead of focusing so much on the results, which you and I have no control over. I mean, it allows us to get on our knees and to say, hey, the most valuable thing that I could be doing right now is crying out to God, the God who moves, the Holy Spirit who's living and active, that goes before us and does all these different things. It says, you know what, I'm trusting him with these results and allows us to focus on being faithful and saying, God, I'm trusting you with all these different results. Church, it's all found right there at the feet of Jesus. I mean, it's all there at the feet of Jesus that he reminds you that he is the one who has all the power and authority in the world. He is the one who speaks to storms and sees them be still. He's the one who can feed thousands and thousands of people with five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Honestly, like what in the world is Martha concerned about? Like he can turn a Lunchable into a Thanksgiving feast. I mean, it's just what he does. He likes to show off that way. He's just like, hey, here's my power. Like honestly, what is she thinking is not going to be done? I mean, I'm thinking of a couple weeks ago. We sat here last week and we mourned together the loss of a, of a, family, a family member in our church body. I told you the story of Allen Valley and and, um, and Collins Infante. I mean, all week long, we were sitting there. As soon as the tragic thing took place, we're sitting with five-year-old Collins Infante. And we're sitting there kind of going, okay, how in the world do we minister to this little girl that she's going to be okay in the middle of this tragic thing that's taking place? People are talking to her. Grief counselors are talking to her. Parents, uh, friends and family trying to talk to her and try to get through. And none of us were having a whole lot of success. And we're just sitting there praying, okay, Lord, I please meet this little girl in the middle of her grief. It was 10-year-old Allen Valley that was there at the funeral last Saturday that God used to come and to break through in the little five-year-old Collins Infante's life. He came and he gave her his big giant hug and said, I, I've been where you've been before. I also lost a little sister. And I just want you to know that God can meet you in this place and he will take you over time. Here's a little book that God used in my life. Church, we were sitting there frantic and saying, well, I can't do this. I can't reach. I don't know how to talk, and I don't know how to do all these different things. But God is more than capable, so much so that he uses a 10-year-old little boy to come in to do what no grown man, no grown woman was able to do at that time. Church, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. He wants to use us over and over and over again. But his power is more than sufficient to overcome whatever it is you're afraid is not going to be done. You can come before Jesus. You can sit at his feet. You can come before him boldly knowing that he invites us to pray and he invites us to come so that he can intercede on our behalf and so that his power can be made perfect in the middle of all of our weakness. 
Church, what in the world are we so afraid of? Some of us are worried and upset because we honestly think that we've got to do everything that God has ever wanted to be done, to be done in my lifetime through me. Some of us are so, you ever felt that pressure before? Okay, here's everything that the Bible lifts up and says is good and holy and of God. I've got to go be able to go do all those different things. I mean, I can only imagine like Martha's thinking, okay, I've got to cook, I've got to clean, I've got to pay the bills, I've got to be the perfect spouse, I've got to be the perfect parent, I've got to be the perfect friend, and of course I've got to have the entire Bible memorized. Um, I've got to cure cancer, I've got to travel the world doing, doing missions, I've got to preach the gospel, I've also got to be able to lead people in worship like Travis does, I've got to be able to solve world hunger, I've got to solve the or orphan crisis and all these different kinds of things. I mean, have you ever felt the pressure of looking around a broken world and saying, that's broken, that's broken, that's broken, that's broken, that's broken, I'm broken, my friends are broken, my family's broken, there's all this brokenness around here. How in the world am I going to solve all these different things? I mean, I remember in college for us, college was that time for me that I was discovering the beauty of Jesus really for the, really kind of in a new way, in a new beautiful way. And it was a time a lot of college, like we get really, really passionate about things. We're on our own. We're discovering our own identity and, and who God really is. A lot of college students were very passionate about Jesus at that time. Remember in those college years, it was all about missions at the time, world missions. I remember going to these conferences and they, they were saying things like, hey, if you're a Christian, you're, really, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you already are called to missions, so you need to pack your bags, you need to go to the airport, you need to buy your ticket, and you need to go down that aisle, you need to be going down that runway until you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit has stopped that and he specifically called you to the United States of America. And I remember listening to those messages kind of going, whoa, that's intense. Wow, okay, we probably need to do that. Probably need to, I, I, I'm a Christian, evidently I need to go overseas and I need to sell it all. I need to go work with the tribal groups and I need to live, in the, live on the dirt and that, and that kind of a thing. And the problem is the next week we went to a different conference and it was all about all the brokenness that was taking place in the city. The problem of homelessness, the problem of inner city poverty, the problem of broken families, the problem of refugees, like the problem of the, the orphan crisis which is here all around us and not just overseas and things of that nature. And I remember going from that one kind of going, wow, there's just so much brokenness. There's so many different things that are all around the world. Like, what, what, how in the world am I going to solve all these things? How in the world am I going to do all these things? And I felt like I needed to go do missions. I needed to go uh, adopt babies. I needed to go solve the homeless problem. I needed to go secure cancer. I needed to go do all these different kinds of things. And we're just sitting there kind of going, I, I love how J.D. Greer talks about it. He says, church, it is good for us to understand that not everything that comes from God has your name on it. Right? Anybody need to be reminded of that simple, obvious fact? Not everything good that comes from God has your name on it. In other words, you and I weren't designed or even called by God to take on every single broken project in the world. Right? I, I love how John Maxwell talks about this. He says, it's, a, it, it's, the, under, it's the importance of understanding your why. Right? This is, it's the importance of understanding your why. Why God chose to bring you into this life the specific good works he's called you to do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works which he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. It's the, it's the discovery process of discovering what are those specific things that God has called me to do myself. It's the old, old Mark Twain quote that we quote a lot of times. It's the two most important days in our life are the day that you were born and the day you discovered why. But he says that knowing your why will keep you from chasing all the different rice that gets in your way every single day, essentially. Church, have you ever taken time to come before the Lord, maybe in the context of a community group or maybe in the context of a family, people that know you, people that are spiritually discerning, 
and to ask the whole to ask the Lord, okay, God, why did you bring me into this place, and where do you want me to place my priorities and all of my focus? Never forget, it was probably about nine years ago. I heard John Maxwell talk on this talk on this message before, and very very powerful talk. He talked about uh, again the same thing: setting your priorities and keeping first things first, and. He gave his own examples of what God had called him to do. And, of course, he challenged everybody out there to go home and in the context of a community and the people that know you that are spiritually discerning and things of that nature, to go and ask that question before God to say, God, would you help me understand my why? Would you help me understand the unique reasons that you placed me on this earth and the unique, unique things that you've called me specifically to do? I remember going through that process, coming back with a small group and different people that were at the seminary at that time. And I wrote down a list of four things. I wrote down many, many more, but... I think four is going to make the point for us pretty well. The first thing I wrote down is very simply that I, for, be, before every other thing, that I'm called to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength. I mean, writing that down kind of thinking, okay, this is a little bit generic, right? We're all called to this. But you look at scriptures, and, and Jesus is very clear. The guy comes to him and he says, okay, Jesus, of all the commands in scripture, what do you want me to place my focus on? And he says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, just love the Lord your God with everything that you are. Right, that's what he's saying. And so I wrote down a few specifics and I said, okay, it's not just my mind. I do need to love him with my mind. And I wrote down, um, my, one of my priorities is that every single day I need to come before him and I need to open up God's word and I just need to devour it and just sit in the presence of God, learning about who he is, enjoying who he is, savoring who he is. I need to love him with my mind. I need to love him with my strength. In other words, I need to, I need to surrender to him and serve him uh, for the rest of my days. I need to love him with my heart and my soul. In other words, uh, I need my affections to be chasing after him too in a lot of different ways. And so one of my these daily practices that I'll kind of put it, um, sometime at the beginning of my day, I'll go up to my office. I've got these noise-canceling headphones. We'll jam out to my Spotify list and stuff like that, and I'll just sing, and I'll just sing praises to the Lord. God, my heart is yours. All of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength is right there at the beginning. The second part of that command is that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I wrote down the second part, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, uh, beginning with my wife. She's the only person in the world that I made a covenant before God, saying that I'm going to love her until death do us part. She's priority number two right then and there. And I wrote down all these different things because we know that love can be this really, really generic word that doesn't mean a whole lot of things. Like we all say, hey, I love pizza. I love movie. I love lamp. I love, right, right you know what I'm saying? Like I love all these different kinds of things. It has no generic meaning in scripture. I wrote down all these different meanings and to say, when I love my wife, it means that I'm going to intentionally spend time with her. We're going to continue to date the rest of our days. And even in the poor days, we were doing <laughs> McDonald's dates and things of that nature. Um, we're going to date. We're going to talk. We're going to connect every single day. I wrote down Ephesians chapter 5 kind of love is one of the things that I wrote down. Ephesians chapter 5 kind of love says, yeah, that you submit to one another. You give yourselves fully to one another. Wives to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Jesus Christ loved the church and was willing to lay down his life for the flourishing of the church. And I wrote down that that's not just some affectionate thing, that thing that I can say, yeah, 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 I have affectionate feelings to my spouse, but it's a, you know what, I'm going to give my life for the flourishing of my wife. Meaning, in other words, we're not only going to date, we're not only going to talk and make sure that we connect and enjoy one another and spend time together and things like that, but I'm going to make sure that I understand Kat's why also. The unique reasons why God made her and put her on this planet. The unique things that God has called her to do. And as her husband, I'm going to come alongside and try to make sure that she is faithfully chasing after Jesus first and foremost. Not just me, but chasing after Jesus. And then I'm going to come alongside and make sure that she is doing everything that God has called her to do. 
Number three, I wrote, number, I just want to be a good dad to Caleb. God has given me a child. At that point, point in time, it was just a good father, but now it's a good, good dad to Caleb. And I wrote, number three comes after number two and number one. I can't be a fantastic father to Caleb if I'm not a, a, a present and faithful husband to my spouse. And we're not creating this home, this environment where, where Caleb's able to flourish. None of that's able to take place if I'm not first and foremost coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, loving him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. But I'm going to love Caleb, and I'm going to be a good dad to Caleb, and I wrote out a few things, meaning I'm going to be present with him, meaning I'm not always going to be saying yes to the boys and happy hour and things of that nature. Happy hour for some people. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm not just going to be going out after work and hanging out with the friends all the time, but I'm going to come home and be present with my son. I wrote down, I'm going to be intentional with the words, meaning I'm going to make sure that he knows that I love him. And I'm going to say those words verbally to him many, many times a day. And I'm not going to take it for granted that he's just going to get it one time that I say it in the past. We're going to repeat those words all the time. I wrote down that I'm going to be intentional to teach him all the things about God. And I'm going to teach him how to be a godly man, not just a person who's strong, but someone who's full of kindness, full of compassion, who knows how to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. In other words, we're not just going to go out and play sports, even though we're going to do that. We're not just going to go out and draw pictures, even though we go and do that. But we're going to take time to intentionally teach and intentionally train and teach them how to do these different things. The fourth thing that I wrote down is that I'd be faithful to serve the local church. And this is the thing in the context of community that we were discerning. This is my personal burden. This is my personal calling. And it's going to be different for every single person in this church. But my specific thing was that God gave me a burden for the local church body, to pastor and to shepherd a local church. And so I wrote down a number of things there that specifically vision, preaching, and compassion. Um, vision meaning, I wrote this down and just said, you know what, a, a large portion of my time is going to be spent on my knees, prayerfully discerning where God is taking me personally, my family, um, and this local church body. And we're going to be listening and discerning to him. In other words, like a lot, of, a lot of my time simply is up there. And if God doesn't exist and he's not listening to my prayers, then I'm just simply wasting time. Because we're up there and we're praying. We're asking him to come and to lead us and to give us wisdom and discernment where we need to go in the future. Another part of that is preaching. I need to understand God's word, grow and develop as a preacher. The third part is compassion, meaning I need to respond to the different needs that are in the church body. We need to have the hospital visits, and we need to take care of some of these issues that are, uh, that, that are burdening people here. John Maxwell talked about the fact that God had called him to be a writer, and he said, this is different. So for me, he said, as a writer, I'm going to make it a priority that every day I'm going to take time to write at least a page worth of a blog or a journal entry or something like that, but I'm going to be shaping and refining my craft as a writer. And that's where it's going to get very, very unique for every single one of us. Whatever that unique thing is for you, we're going to be writing in this place and saying, you know what, every day I'm going to be sharpening these things and going after these particular things. But here's my point in sharing all of this, church. Vocational calling is only number four. All of these different things, like all of these different things that we're talking about right here, Good things, unique things that are unique to me, that are unique to you. The unique things that God has given you to do on this earth are only number four. Church, Martha's hospitality gifting is absolutely legitimate. It is a beautiful, unique gifting. She has this heart that has been uniquely given to her by God to love people well, to serve them. Service is probably a love language of hers. She is just going after it. She's opening up her home to strangers. She's cooking for them. She's taking care of all these different kinds of things. And as great as all of that is, it is still number four. I think what Jesus is trying to show us here through Mary's and Martha's story is that even before all the different doing and even before all the 
different responsibilities of life, we have got to be willing to simply sit at the feet of Jesus. I want to wrap up with this one. I was reading this uh, article this past week, and it was about, um, it was from Christianity Today. It was on the myth of the perfect parent, and uh, that, was, uh, that was refreshing in and of itself. Um, I think it's relevant whether you're parenting or not. It's talking about why the different parenting techniques don't always produce Christian children. Uh, there's a guy named Brian Kaplan. He's a professor of George Mason University. They did this long study, uh, many, many years long, where they were asking teenage children to essentially evaluate um, their parents, which must have been fun for them, right? I'm thinking that's got to be like the, the, the greatest um, study that they could have ever done. But they're essentially asked to grade their parents on their parenting job uh, growing up and how they did. And Kaplan talks about this, and he says, I think that the results were absolutely f fascinating. He said, most of the time, kids were not asking for more and better things from their parents. In other words, they weren't asking for more luxuries, more comfort, or, or bigger and better toys. They also weren't even asking for more time. The thing that they wanted more than anything else was that their parents would be less stressed, less prone to anger during the times that they did spend together because all of that stress and all of that fear was unintentionally being passed on to them. Church, here it is. Whether you're a parent or not, like every bit of that is found sitting at the feet of Jesus, resting in him. First and foremost, before you begin your day, beginning and end, sitting there and resting at the feet of Jesus. I mean, Paul's going to talk about this. Galatians chapter 5, he's going to say, as you sit at the feet of Jesus and you surrender to the Holy Spirit, you submit to him in all these different things, he's going to say that the Holy Spirit's going to produce his life in you, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. In other words, church, like when you seek him first, all these other things like loving your spouse, loving your family, loving your neighbor, doing good work, being full of joy, being full of peace, all those other things have a way of falling into line. That's why fear dissipates at the feet of Jesus, church. And it's why Jesus says of Mary that she's chosen the better thing right here. Church, may we be a church that chooses the better thing. I'm going to invite you to pray with me.